Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. All right. Good morning. Good to see all of y'all this morning. So happy to be again with you in the book of Judges. If it's uh, your first time or it's been a while since you've been here, we're, we're smack into Judges right now, which you might think, boy, I don't know how that's going to speak into my life. I assure you it will. I promise you that this morning God's Word will not return void. It is part of what He promises with His Word. And so I'm so thankful this morning to be sharing with you out of Judges chapter 4 and 5. And I just want to remind you, we've entitled the whole series searching for a true savior and the reason for that is is there's a lot of these little mini saviors these little heroes throughout the the story that we're reading together over the next few weeks but none of them are going to fulfill what really needs to happen for Israel and for us Uh, part of the reason is they all die and that's a problem uh, that uh, we need an eternal savior and none of these are that and more than that we need a perfect savior and none of these are even close and so as we're digging in this book is called Judges and Remember, don't, don't think so much about the judge in the courtroom so much as you think about someone who is judging the people and rescuing them, a deliverer, if you will. All of these flawed human people God is using and still using. It's still what God is about, that He uses His people to glorify Himself, to bring others into salvation. And it's not perfect all the time because we're imperfect. And for whatever reason, God decides to use unusual, unlikely, imperfect people to bring his message to the world. And I'm thankful for that because what, what, there's no better purpose than that. Uh, what a joy that is for me as a, I know a, a real mess in myself, but he gives me the opportunity to speak. And he's done the same for each and every one of you. And I'm so thankful for his word today. In fact, that's really the summarization of these two chapters we're going to spend time in today. That's the idea that God has called each and every one of us. That each and every one of us have a calling in our life and we may not always know specifically what that is, but generally we all know what that is, and that is God has left us here. He didn't take us home immediately. If you came to Christ, He didn't just immediately remove you. And you should ask this question, why? Why after I came to salvation did I not immediately go to heaven? If not, because He has a reason for me here, and I have a ministry now. And so we all have this general calling, but I assure you, it's even more specific for each and every one of us, and it's based In the way he's shaped you, the way he's designed you, it's specific. And he knows exactly what he wants you to do. So what about you? What's God's calling on your life? What do you think you are called to do? Maybe you're asking, you know, maybe you're thinking, well, there's there's these special talents that God gives. And I can't sing. I I can't play a guitar. I can't beat anything on rhythm. I I can't speak very well. You know, Moses said that once. Uh, God used him pretty mightily. Uh, there's, there's all of these things we think that we must have in order to have a calling, and it's not so. In fact, God has shaped us uniquely. And so if you're, if you're saying that this morning, I just don't know if I have the ability. The question I, I'm going to continue to pose throughout this is, God's not asking, do you have the ability? He's asking, do you have the availability? Are you willing? Is your yes on the table? And most of us, are, the real problem is not that we lack talent. It's that we lack yes. We lack the ability to say yes to God because we don't know where he'll lead us. And that's scary. And there's such joy in that unknown. Sometimes God trusts us with times of trouble. 
Sometimes He trusts us with times of suffering to get our attention. Maybe that's where you are today. Maybe there's a time of difficulty you're right in the middle of and you're wondering, okay, God, what are you up to? I wonder at times He uses these moments so we would finally listen. Because if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm not good at pausing and just listening. I'm really good at continuing to work and move fast and do everything that I think I need to do rather than just, wait a minute, God, I haven't heard from you in quite some time. Am I still heading where I should be heading? Am I doing what I should be doing? That's what we're talking about today. Answering God's call, hearing it, saying yes, moving through times of trouble, dealing with times of pain, but also times where we're on mountaintops and seeing God in all of that. In chapters 4 and 5 of Judges, the people of Israel... And this is going to be the constant story we come back to. The people of Israel rebelled again. Now, that, don't judge them harshly. Guess what you do? Probably weekly, you rebel again. It's not that we want to. In fact, those of us who follow Christ closely are becoming more and more aware that we are broken and in desperate need of a Savior. And every day it's more relevant to me. But I know that I have rebellion in my heart that, I, I, that I'm hoping God will continue to drive out. But it's an incomplete process. And the people of Israel are doing it in the worst kind of way. Rebelling against the Lord. Doing evil in His sight. Turning to to idols. To false gods. Which people still do constantly. And they're falling into servitude. Having to serve other nations. And then they do the same thing over and over. And then finally they cry out. When things get tough enough. For 20 years we're going to read. They suffered. Before they began to cry out. Some of you may be part of your problem. Is it takes you way too long to realize. I can't handle this. Maybe cry out sooner. Maybe that's what God's trying to show you in the midst of this. So what does God do? He calls an unlikely duo. We're going to read about Deborah and Barak today, rescuing Israel. They answered God's call. And we can do this as well. We can answer God's call on our lives. The text is going to give us three attributes to those who answer, of those who answer God's call. So I've got quite a bit of reading, but I'm going to break it up into some bites for you. And this is unique. I don't always do it this way, but chapters 4 and 5 are are unusual in that 4 is a narrative and 5 is a song. And chapter 5 is a song about chapter 4, the narrative. So I'm going to take a little bit of 4 and a little bit of 5, and we're going to do that three times together. All right, so let's read chapter 4, just a snippet, and then chapter 5, a little bit of it. And the people of God, verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sesera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for a help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go! Gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sesera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and with his troops. And I will give give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, 
I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sesra into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now let's read a bite of chapter 5 of the song. Verses 1 through 11. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear. O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled, the heavens dropped, yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers. And Israel then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. All right, let's pause there. Those who answer God's call courageously obey God's word. These are the attributes of those who desire to answer the call of God. The first and maybe the most important step is to courageously obey His word. Now I've heard this preached many times. I've heard a lot of different uh, ways of looking at this piece of scripture. And yet this week I felt the Lord really pressing in uh, on some attributes, on some things that he wanted me to first consider and then hopefully for you to consider. And that is this, this first piece is how, how, is, how is Deborah a hero in this? How is Barak? And, and the many times I've heard it preached, Barak is kind of a sissy. He's kind of a, he's kind of a wuss in the story, right? He's, he, he needs Deborah to go with him. He needs somebody to hold his hand. I've heard it preached that way before, and yet I have a problem with that as I look at the text in a fresh way. And as I look at it also through the lens of the New Testament, who puts Barak in the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews chapter 11. That's problematic. The Bible sees Barak not as a sissy, but as a hero, a man of faith. Deborah too, both faithful, answering the call. And so what is this? What's going on here? Well, well, we see Israel going through this cycle. And you can pop up this image. We see Israel going through this same cycle. We're going to kind of... I think just about every week, look at this in a fresh way. They, they sin, they go into servitude, there's much sorrow, and then God saves them. And then there's a series of rests. It's just over and over and over and over again. And sadly, isn't this your story sometimes? Isn't this our story a whole lot? As we fall back prey to some temptation, and then it begins to master us again. And we go, God, please set me free of it, of this anxiety, of this, this depression, of this addiction, of this... Terrible way of thinking of this anger that I can't control. And then he rescues. And we get into this habit, just like the people of Israel. And they fall, they fall and pray here to some people 
that are maybe different than what we've seen in the past couple of chapters. These are the Canaanites. These are, these are the people who have hunkered down and stayed firm in their land. These aren't outside invaders. These are internal problems. These are the people that God said you must drive them out. This is your land. This is the land in which I've given to your fathers. And they didn't drive them out. And now look what's happening. You've got this Jabin, king of Canaan, which is this large area, kind of northern Israel. And his commander, Sesera, again with these chariots of iron, which is like, like armor in the ancient day. It's like having tanks when everybody else has foot soldiers. It's a problem. And the people don't know what to do about it. And if you noticed in that song, you might have picked it up. It was like verse 8, chapter 5. Deborah is singing, there's no shield or spear among the 40,000 in Israel. These people are under-equipped. As is the story oftentimes with the Israelites, they come to war with the stuff they have. And it's not swords, it's not spears, it's not shields. They got pitchforks and ox goads, they got shepherd staffs, and God still delivers the victory. Why? Because it doesn't matter their power. It matters His power. It doesn't matter, again, I started with this, it doesn't matter, my friend, your ability. It matters your availability. And so they show up underprepared, and yet God has victory. Sesera, he's standing firm with these 900 chariots of iron and men that are with that. He's got probably thousands of troops with this, this armor unit. And for 20 years, he dealt cruelly with the people. This is the first time you see that mentioned, cruelty. Perhaps because these are, those, these are the people who are already in the land. They're extra frustrated with the Israelites that they're trying to take their land from them. And so... It's cruelty. So now we have the appearance of Deborah. Deborah and Barak. What wonder. This is a, a magnificent piece of scripture because, first of all, Deborah is the only judge, the only female judge in the whole story. Her name, her name means bee. Like, bzz. and she's, she's fiery like that, I guess. She's got kind of a sting. She's described in verse 7 of chapter 5 as a mother in Israel. She's taken on this this motherly role where people are coming to her to get judgment. Of all of the judges, she's kind of the most similar to the judge you think of. One with a gavel, if you will. She's in this place, and you can could, you could pop up this image. This, some of these are kind of hard to see, but she's at this place called the Palm of Deborah, which you might think that's kind of silly, like she's Deborah, she's at the Palm of Deborah. Maybe she chose that place because it seems that's the, the tree under which Deborah the the nurse of Rebecca, way hundreds of years ago, was buried. And so everybody knows the palm of Deborah. If your name was Deborah and you're a prophetess, maybe you'd say, that's probably a good spot for me to take up residence. And so that's where she's hanging out and deliberating judgments for the people. But there's some unique things the Bible describes about her as well. She's a prophetess. That troubles some people. It doesn't trouble me. There's a lot of, of women in the Bible who are described as prophetesses. Described as people who deliberate judgments like this. Who, she's unique in the judge's story. However, she's not unique in the picture of Scripture. I, I want to talk more about that in just a minute. But then you have this appearance of Barak, whose name means a lightning. And what is, what is her word to him? Her word to him is, go, haven't you? And this is somewhat troubling, but I think it's poetic. in that she summons him and says, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? She puts this thing in past tense. I wonder, and, and there's no way to know for certain, but I wonder if Barak's already hearing from God. He has some level of power in his, in his town. He has some level of influence. That's why God calls him out. 
He has the ability to get 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun to rise and go to war. So this, this man has some prominence. And perhaps he's already feeling from the Lord, I need to do something. And now he gets a fresh word from the prophetess. Go, haven't you heard? Go, raise up an army and go out and fight Sesera. Okay, wonderful. And you know what's great? God doesn't just call the general. Look at this. Verse 6, if you missed it. He, he summons Barak. And then the Lord also says, go gather your men at Mount Tabor. So he not only tells you in the story who I'm calling out, but where I want you to go. He's the one who calls the, the commander. He's also the one who gives out the strategy. And he says, look, not only that, I'm going to tell you, you're going to go back down by the Kishon River. That might not be the place that anybody else would pick. Why that place? It's not necessarily a great battleground if you look at that in the geography. And yet that's where God is sending him. And you're going to find out why. Because God's in charge and he's got a great plan. A miraculous plan. And so he calls the man. He calls the strategy. He calls out the battle. And then we get this hesitation. And this is where you hear these sermons preached that I'm not so sure is the right way to land. Barak says to Deborah, if you'll go with me, I'll go. If you don't go with me, I'm not going. Now that sounds like faithlessness. That sounds like the kind of hesitation that doesn't make a lot of sense for this great commander. But I would, I would argue, considering that the rest of Scripture portrays Barak as a hero of the faith, Samuel as well in his, his farewell speech, you can go to 1 Samuel 12 and see this, describes him as one of the leaders of Israel. That Barak is instead here not so much wanting someone to hold his hand, but wanting the presence of God to be with him. And this isn't uncommon, okay? So I think it would be unfair to look at Barak and go, what a wuss. He needs, he needs his mommy to hold his hand through the battle. No. No, this sounds more like Moses. This sounds more like some of the ancient patriarchs. In fact, you can turn, this is in Exodus, I believe it's Exodus 31. I could be wrong about where that's at. I read it this past week, I didn't make note of it. But we see this very thing that... that, that Exodus 33, I do have it written, this, that Moses, as he's, he's heading into the promised land, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. And so if Barak sees Deborah as the voice of God, as God's spokesman, which she is, he just wants to know, okay, is God going with me? Is God's presence going with me? And her response tells the story, surely I will be with you. That sounds very much like the Lord. And so that's, that's what's going on here. Now, she does give him a piece of information <laughs> that may trouble some. She says, I'm not, God's not going to give you the glory. Verse 9, you're not going to get the glory. In fact, God's going to sell Sesera into the hand of a woman. Now, that was kind of expected because we have Deborah, and yet, you know what? It's not going to be Deborah. So it's like the writer here is giving you this anticipation. What does Barak do? Oh, I'm not going to get the glory. I'm not going to go. I mean, if I'm not going to get the success, I'm not going. If I don't get the wealth, if I don't get the prominence, I'm not going to go. But what does Barak do? He goes, and what is, what is he risking? He's risking his very life, knowing that God has already said, my name will not be famous. And the woman who kills Sesera, as we'll see soon in just a few minutes in reading, she doesn't get the glory either. Because who's the hero of this story? God. God's the hero. He's the hero of your story. He's the hero of my story. God's the hero of the book 
<laughs> he's the hero of the whole book, much less the book of Judges. He's the hero. And so the people sang, the people blessed the Lord. Sesera is defeated, not by the hand of Barak, but by the hand of the Lord. Remember what God told Joshua. He said, be strong and courageous. This is Joshua chapter 1. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then... You will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. Courageously obey the word of God. When all around you walk away from it. When all around you break it down and say this part can't be true. This can't be right. And they, they, they cannot buy the, the word of God because it seems old or it seems dated. Or it seems uh, to have these, these issues. No, you instead as Joshua, as the people of God through millennia. You make the decision I'm going to cor- courageously obey it. And I may not like everything I read, but I'm asking God instead. Instead of me looking at it and going, well, the Bible must not be true. I'm going to look at it and go, okay, I've got an issue. And for some reason, there's a disconnect between me and the Word of God here. God, help me. Guide me. Help me to see where it is you're teaching me and instructing me. There's some application here that I don't want to, I don't want to overlook. Some, some biblical uh, illustration is given here of Deborah and Barak and there's, there's this common debate that's become all the more common in our culture nowadays. And I would argue maybe 50 years ago it wasn't even something that a preacher would, would investigate. But now I think I shouldn't overlook it. And that is, here we have this prophetess Deborah and this woman who is gifted. And I want to argue from a stance that I believe is the most biblical. The biblical narrative, I would argue, is not always normative. Okay, So what's going on in the book of Judges? doesn't necessarily need to be repeated. In fact, I would argue most of what we're going to read over the next few weeks absolutely should not be repeated. What we're going to read in just a few minutes should not be repeated. And so just because these things did happen doesn't mean they are what should happen or what ought to happen today. And this passage is often mishandled. And so I think there's two ways we can mishandle this. First, by seeing Deborah as an anomaly. That, that God is only using this one woman like this in the story. And that Barak is just a, he, he's shirked his responsibility and so Deborah has to do it. I think that's an incorrect, a mishandling of the text. Also to insist, however, that anything a man can do, a woman should do. This misses some of the roles that the Bible often gives. And so God fully gifts men and women according to his purpose. And there seems to be no difference in his gifting. However, he has a difference in roles. We see it in the family. We see it in the church. And I know this might not be popular. I'm, I'm fully aware that some of you might not like this, but I'm taking what I believe to be the Bible's greatest uh, approach on this, and that is what we see in the home is also what should be on display to the world. And so it calls men, just so you know, and whether you like it or not, Ephesians is pretty clear that it calls men to be the spiritual leaders of their homes. To wash their wives with the word. To be, if you will, the spiritual priest of their, ho- of their household. And that's what right looks like. It also calls men to be the priests in the church. Deborah is not listed here as a priest. You'll see that very careful. In fact, two of the great gifts are given to her. She is a judge. Wow. She's a prophet. Wow. She's not a priest. No women are. 
because God has that role described appropriately for men. It has this same, this carries into the New Testament, so it's not just the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, you do not see the role of elder pastor. It's limited, however, to men. First Timothy 2 and 3. But with great calling on their life, women have wonderful gifting, all the same amounts of gifts as men. And so I want to encourage, I think this, this text should both encourage men and women uniquely. It encourages women to answer the call of God on their life and, and test the word of God. That often God gives you a word he may not give anyone else. You are given spiritual authority to lead and to serve within those roles. And they are many. Men, it's a, it's, a, it's a similar but different message to you. Listen, it would be good advice to listen to the godly women in your life. God gives words to all kinds of people. He gives it here to Deborah for Barak. He's given words to me through all kinds of people. Sometimes people that I am uncomfortable around, I may not even care for them so much, and yet God gives them a word for me. Listen to the godly women in your life. Listen to the godly, righteous people in your life. And encourage women in your life to partner with you on God's mission. This is a partnership. Barak, listen to Deborah. Barak wants Deborah in on the adventure. On, he wants the presence of God on display in this mission. So he obeys God's word. Now all that said, and I could go into, I could preach a whole sermon on this particular topic. It's huge. And there's a lot of opinions about it. A lot of different places we could go. I would make this statement blanket statement. I don't think this passage of Scripture has this as its intent. I think the intent of this piece is to point to Christ, to point to God and say He's the hero. I think the point of this story is that we would learn obedience like the Israelites, like the people of faith. And so let's continue now in our reading. We can talk more if you want to discuss this in private about what they call the egalitarian complementarian debate. It is huge, and we could go into great detail. So let's continue now in Judges chapter 4, starting at verse 11. This is where the story starts to take a turn for the weird. Verse 11, all of a sudden there's an aside. It says, Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, who had pitched his tent as far away as the oak of Kananaim. And which is near Kadesh. So this Heber guy has, he's not where he should be. And he's made an alliance we're going to see in just a minute. Verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army of Harasheth Hagoim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. Now let's read a bit of the song, chapter 5, verse 12. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. 
Then the people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, why did you stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings, they came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan and at, at Tanakh. By the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver from heaven. The stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sesra. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. Then Lao beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse morose, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Okay, wow. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. What is the next attribute of those who answer the call? They completely rely on God's presence and power. Now, there's a lot to unpack, and I can't unpack every bit of it, But this is the second time that Deborah gives instruction to General Barak. And then there's a song they sing about that. The instruction is up, go. The time is now. The Lord has has put him into your hand. It's time to go. And so Barak isn't the one making the battle plan. Neither is it really Deborah. Deborah is a voice of God. And God says it's time. Why? Because something's happening (laughs) that the song describes. Did you notice there at the end of my reading in chapter 5, the torrent Kishon, the ancient torrent, swept them away. What's a torrent? It has to do with like a great rain, a great like amount of water rising on this river. Like there's a great flood, if you will. That's the idea of a torrent, a downpour, if you will. And so this seems to be what's happening here. Why is it the appropriate time? Why is God sending him? Why did Kishon... This, this river that is normally, as most have described, this plain, predictable river that doesn't do much becomes more like the Tar River, which does a whole lot sometimes. All right, Why is, why is he saying at this moment? Well, I, I would guess. I would just guess that the skies have become black, that there's a, great, there's a great flood coming that God has planned. How is God seeking to deliver the chariots of iron into the hands of his people? By rendering them completely useless. It reminds me almost exactly of what God did with the people in the Exodus. As they cross the sea, as God parts the waters, the people go through, and then the chariots try to steamroll through there, and He just flushes them out. I think the irony there is on purpose. I think that's exactly what we're seeing. In fact, the song of Miriam, which you can go back and read, is almost immediately after that event. And here's the song of Deborah immediately after this event where God seems to have washed away the chariots of Sesera. Well, now that seems like uh, kind of an unfair win there for God. That's kind of how he rolls. 
He does things his way. He's just asking, will you guys show up, Barak, with these men, which seems to be close to 40,000? Will you go to war and then watch me do what I do? Will you be available? Will you say yes? And the glory, just so you know, it's not going to be for the people. The glory is going to be the Lord's because the Lord's going to do it. So here's our step. Completely rely on God's presence and power. Completely rely on it. Because he's the one who leads the charge. He's the one, again, in our life now. I don't care if you don't, if you don't have enough ability. I just want to know, will you go? Will you go for me? Verse 11 is like an aside. And here you get this Heber and this Hobab. And you're thinking, well, those are not great Bob, like baby names. So I don't know what I'm going to do with Heber and Hobab. But, and I wouldn't recommend them. Neither one of them are, are very, very interesting names. But Heber is not even a good dude in the story necessarily. Heber... Has, has moved on from his people. The Kenites are supposed to be down south. He's separated himself from them. And he's made an alliance with Jabin. And then verse 14. The Lord goes out before them. You can pop up this image. I don't know. I imagine all of these are somewhat difficult to see. But this is northern Israel above Jerusalem. And, and the places you might be aware of. Near the Sea of Galilee. And this is where the battle is taking place. On the river Kishon. Near Megiddo. And that name alone, Megiddo, you can pop up this next image. That might sound familiar to you in the sense of it's 34 battles are mentioned as being fought here in, in the Bible. Megiddo is like the great battleground, if you will. Twelve of them are mentioned in, in the Old Testament. The final battle, in fact, is mentioned in Revelation 16 as taking place at Megiddo. A great battle where the Lord will do again what he's done here. He will sweep away the enemies of Satan. The enemies who are Satan and his people. And so the torrent Kishon sweeps them away. Now it mentions in the song all these different tribes. And maybe that, that all just seemed irrelevant to you. I'm kind of a weirdo. And I'm sitting there going, okay God, there's 12 tribes. Did they all go to war? Who, who, who didn't go here? And just, just so you know, 10 tribes are mentioned, two aren't. Judah and Simeon are not mentioned. And very little commentation is made about this. So I don't know exactly. And I think there, there's a reason there's not a lot of commentation. Because no one knows. Either they were not asked. Or they refused to go. They don't even make the song. But the other ten do. Ephraim goes to war. Benjamin goes to war. Makir, who is a son of Manasseh. So that's the tribe of Manasseh described here. Goes to war. Zebulun goes to war. Essachar, Naphtali, they all go to war. 40,000 it seems. Reuben, Gad, Dan, and Asher sit home. Stay back. And uh, the stuff that is sang about them is not so very great. Why did you sit around the ships? Why did you just stay back? Oh, Reuben, there was great searchings of heart. You just sat in your sheepfolds and, and listened to the sheep moan. Where were you on all this? No commendation is given for them at all. They didn't believe in the presence of the Lord here, or at least weren't, weren't willing to say yes. They, they had better things to do, if you will, rather than answer the Lord's call. But we have the presence and power of God available to us, if we only understood that. I could go to many places in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3 says this, May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through His mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more 
than we might ask or think. This is the God we serve. This is the presence and the power we must rely on. Now, I've got a question for y'all, something I've been thinking about all week. When you read your Bible, or when you hear stories about these heroes of old, do you read that these heroes have some kind of uncommon ability or unwavering willpower? I don't know which ones you're reading. I don't see those. <laughs> no, I, I read really quite the opposite. And I want to give you a list of a few, and the list is a lot longer. The, I, the story of Abraham is he's too old. <laughs> he's too old to get it. Elijah's suicidal. Moses claims to have a speech problem. Rahab was a prostitute. Noah was a drunk. Jacob was a liar. David was both a murderer and what seems to be an emotional roller coaster. Jonah ran from God and was completely unwilling to do it. Hated this people so much that he went in the other direction. Peter denied Christ to save face and also cut a man's ear off. Didn't understand what was going on. The disciples almost in that same moment fell asleep when they were supposed to be praying. Don't feel too bad. Martha worried about everything. Paul was called, though he murdered Christians all over the known world. Those are the heroes of the faith. So, what separates them from those who aren't the heroes of the faith? Not their ability. Certainly not their willpower. It's the yes. That's the difference. And some of them said no a whole lot before they finally said yes. And maybe that's been your story, my friend. That same God is calling you out. Calling you to say yes. And calling you ready and willing and knowing that His power and His presence are available. And more than available, He is willing. When my spirit is weak, He is willing. When I suffer in my own lack of strength, He is strong. In fact, He can show up stronger when I finally admit to my weakness. When I finally am willing to say, I'm not going to be enough. I can't help but look at this personally and see it for my own sake. And I look at what I'm doing in life and I go, there's no way, God, you called me to do this. You know me too good, God, to call me to do this. You know my mind. You know my heart. You know that I am so, so confused at times. I don't know where to go next. And I struggle with temptation just like all the people you've called me to shepherd and teach and preach to. And I get a constant reminder as I get again here. Jonathan, I don't need you to be great. I just need you to trust that I am. I wonder, church, can you do that? He doesn't need you to be everything. He is everything. He doesn't need you to have it all figured out. He just needs to see if you're willing to trust him. There's some great questions that you're asking right now. Where should I go? What should I be? How should I parent? How should I be a spouse? What should I do next? Am I doing the right career? Should I go on this mission trip? Should I do this? There's so many questions you're asking. He's asking a more simple one. Will you say yes and trust that I can fill in the blanks? Will you rely on my presence and my power? God, please let your people observe your presence. Let your people see your power at work. Let me finish with this last bite of Scripture. This is where the story just straight up gets so weird. 
And I know that's why some of you, now you're starting to come back. You just want to hear what happens next in this crazy story of Judges. And it gets weirder and weirder. So keep coming back. This is one wild book. Chapter 4, verse 17. Sesera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who we just heard about. For there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor in the house of Heber the Kenite. Now that's a problem. That shouldn't be happening. He's made an alliance with the enemy. Verse 18, Jael came out to meet Sesser and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. So he turned aside to her and into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. I think this is a better translation would be like a blanket type thing, but covering somebody with a rug sounds weird to us, but we're talking like a thick blanket. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. He's run a really long ways. He's run several hundred miles, perhaps. I don't know how long it took him to do this. Please give me a drink of water. So she opened, instead of, of, of water, she opened a skin of milk and gave him, a, gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here? Just say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly. To him, and drove the peg into his temple until it went into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I feel like that piece of the sentence is totally unnecessary. So he died. He just had his. He just got pegged into the ground. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sesera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, "Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking." So he went into her tent, and there lay Sesera with a tent peg in his temple. Look at verse 23. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. God subdued. God gets the credit for all of this, including this weird event where this woman, and there's so many th things that are like motherly in this story. This is like the anti-mother. Like, I'm going to cover you with a blanket. I'm going to give you a nice warm milk bottle. And then I'm going to drive your head into the ground. This is wild. And then chapter 5 finishes this way. Verse 24, most blessed of women be Jael. That's unexpected. The wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sesera and crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Wow. Between her feet he sank, he fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank... There he fell dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sesera welled through the lattice. Now this is cold. This is cold, y'all. Deborah is just scoffing at the mother of Sesera. Wow. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sesera. Spoil of dyed materials embroidered. Two pieces of dyed work 
embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. Okay, yeah, I know you're asking, Jonathan, what are you going to do with this little piece of Scripture? Well, buckle up, because I think it answers this last piece. We must courageously obey His Word. we got to rely on His presence and His power. But we can also have, as those called, confident hope in God's promised victory. Even in spite of this weird nugget, this interesting piece, the Bible is clear that God is the one to be praised. God is the one who subdues. God is the one who routes Sesera's army. God is the one who has victory in our lives. Barak, sure, he's pursuing Sesera. Everything comes to pass in the weirdest of ways. Deborah says, hey, you're not going to get the glory. A woman's going to get the glory. And we like have this anticipation that Deborah's going to be the one to whoop Sesera. And it's not her. It's this other woman who's not even an Israelite. Not even of the nation and, and people of God. She's a Kenite. Whose husband is, and <laughs> has become allied with the enemy. He's a traitor. So a traitor's wife. A traitor's wife gets the glory. Wow. And apparently, you do what you will with this. God can use some, some really tremendously weird stuff for his glory. Like, what I don't want you to hear from this story, and what you shouldn't hear really from many of these biblical accounts, is that this is how things should happen. Because this, first of all, she has disobeyed several laws. Several Ten Commandments, okay? This is murder. This is disobeying a, a Near Eastern... Uh, this has been a, a tradition for, for centuries. It's still true if you go to the Middle East now. There's a certain rule of hospitality, which she has disobeyed. Oh, come on in. Don't be afraid. Let me cover you up. Let me give you a little sippy cup. This is a mess. She's lied. Bear false witness. She's murdered. And yet she's blessed. That's, that's difficult. And yet, that God, that same God has been using what's available for His glory. And what He's still doing, this is this fascinating thing. And Deborah here is blessing her in the song. And God gets the glory for having subdued the enemy. And I wonder, it all points to something for me. Maybe, I don't know what it does in your mind. But these two stories, which are kind of odd together, the story of Deborah Barak, where Barak knows I'm not going to get the glory. Barak knows I'm not the one who's going to receive some kind of wonderful reputation. And Deborah knows I'm, I'm the mouthpiece. I've got to do what God has called me to do and instruct him and go with him in, into this battle scene. And that's her part to play. And then Jael, who doesn't, I don't know if you noticed, there's nothing in there that says, hey, God told her. God did not tell this woman to do this, yet he used it. He doesn't say the Spirit of the Lord was suddenly on Jael and she drove a tent peg into the man's head. Don't see that. It's confusing, but it reminds me of something. So much like Barak is like this prototype, if you will, of the unlikely Savior who is to come. The Bible describes Jesus, in fact, as being one who... Did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but laid it down willingly, taking on the form of a servant. That's how the Bible describes him. 
In fact, in other places, it describes the person Jesus as not being unusually handsome or anything, just kind of an ordinary, common-looking man. And he's not the one who gets the glory even in that story. It's God the Father. And anything, Jesus says countless times, anything I'm about doing, I'm about my Father's business. I'm doing what He has willed for me. And in His unlikely death, He has stakes drove in His hands. So God would use that. God would use the death of Jesus. He would use a person like Barak. He would use this event of Jael to bring salvation to his people. This is, a, this is a difficulty for some of you I know to look at this God and wonder how could you be so wrathful at times and so, so vengeful at times. And What we really should be asking is an even better question is how is it this, this God could ever be gracious to us? How is it that this God would ever show us mercy? Because guess what we're just like? We're not just like the people of Israel. We're like the people of Jabin and Sesera. We are, we, this is a story about us. We're a mess. And there's people in our life that we would very much like to see end. There's some people that if I could fill in the blank and take out Sesera and put in this name of that person you hate, you'd be like, thank the Lord, Jael drove a tent peg into his head. So many of us struggle in that way. And yet an unlikely Savior, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, did not count equality something to be grasped, laid it down and said, God be, be the glory. My Father, get all the praise. The Bible describes that God is the one, God the Father is the one who raised up Jesus from the dead. He is the power. He is the presence. Victory over sin and death comes from this very way. 1 Corinthians 15, it says, Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we're dealing with in this story is a, a very careful pointing to the future. That God is the one who calls the people. God is the one who empowers them to do His work. God is the one who subdues the enemy. God is the one who gets the praise. And what is different about our story? Absolutely nothing. All of those things still ring true in the lives of believers now. One thing has subtly changed. God has already won. These people couldn't see it yet. They didn't know what it would look like. They didn't see it coming. God's, the hope that we now have in God's promised victory is so much better than the people of Judges. They believed. They thought, okay, God will show up. He says go, but we don't know. No, church, we know, and He's done it. He's already taken on the cross for us. He's already poured out His mercy and love for us. And His overall victory is coming. When He comes again, it won't look the same. This Jesus who's coming next time is going to have total victory over sin and death. He's already accomplished it in spiritual sense, but physically it's coming. If you had a time machine, I wonder, if you had a time machine, just how confident would you be to place a couple of bets? If you could go back, some of you, just shoot, you could just go back a couple of months and place a couple of bets on that, that, that Phillies Chiefs game, that, that, that Eagles Chiefs game. You could make a good amount of money if you just, you already know the outcome. Wouldn't take you long to make a good living. Wouldn't take you long if you had a time machine, you could go back and do a couple of things different in your life because you already know how they turn out. Do you understand that's the story of the Bible? You understand that's what you're living? We already know what he's done. 
We already know what he's going to do. And we already know that the people of God should not be living in defeat. That makes no sense. Zero sense. We live rather out of a state of pure hope in the fact that God has already accomplished it and will fulfill it fully in the end. I hope, if nothing else today, you might courageously obey his word. If nothing else today, you would say, you know what, I don't know if I'm enough. In fact, I might argue, I know I'm not. But I know he is. He's more than enough. And I know what he's already done for me. And I could put all my hope there. Let's pray now together, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this story. There's difficult pieces of it. There's difficult parts of this story that I don't understand every, every nugget of it. But the overall theme of the, of the word of God, the overall theme that you give us is that, God, you, you, are, the, you are the hero of your story. You are the hero not just in, this, in these pages, but you're the hero in my story. I'm so thankful for who you are to me, God. And I'm praying that over your people this morning, that more and more we would start to ask this question, who is getting the glory in my story? Is everything I'm doing pointing to Jesus? Is the way I speak, the way I act, the way I live my life, does it show clearly that the hero of my story is Jesus? Because in truth, God, you are absolutely, you are absolutely the hero. In salvation, there's no denying it. In salvation, there's no denying you're the hero. We couldn't even save ourselves. We could take on that cross and it would be illegitimate. It would matter for nothing. And yet you did it and it it changed the world. God, you took on sin for us. You're the hero. You took on death for us. You're the hero. I just pray, Lord, for your people that you would begin to free us. To live in such a way that we would, clearly, we would clearly be perceived as people who rely on your presence, who obey your word completely, and certainly live with the kind of hope that's victorious. Not the kind of, of, of Christian that's humdrum and down and defeated. That makes no sense. God, would you empower us and give us great hope remembering that you've already accomplished, you've already accomplished victory over sin. We have nothing there to fear. There's nothing there left for us to fear. You've conquered it. What comes next after this life, that is not a scary place either. Because you have already risen from the grave. What separates you, Lord Jesus, from all the other judges, and not only the fact that you lived perfect and sinless, but also you're eternal. And we can count on you because you're the Savior who rose again. Thank you, Lord. Dear friend, if you come this morning and you would like very much to put your faith in this, you would like very much to live in such a way that has hope, real hope, and something eternal, something permanent. But you know in your heart, you've not yet put your yes on the table before the Lord Jesus. You've not said yes. You've not put your faith in Him. If that's you today, there's no reason to wait any longer. There's no reason to put that off. The most important decision you'll ever make in this life, do it today. It comes by faith. And I want to offer you an opportunity to pray a prayer of confession, a confession of faith, if you will. As Romans 10, 9 says, if you believe that in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if you 
confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it comes by faith and comes by confession. So pray with me, my friend, if that's you. Lord Jesus, I believe today that you died on the cross for me, for my sin. You took on that tremendous death for my sake, and I couldn't do it for myself. I'm thankful today that you've conquered sin for me, my brokenness, my mess. And God, I'm believing today that you raised Jesus from the dead. That gives me hope for beyond. Not only that you've paid for my mess now, but also you've saved me for eternity. I believe that today. God, you are the hero of my story. Lord Jesus, you are the hero of my story. Dear friend, welcome to the family of God, and we're praying with you. The same thing, God, be the hero of my story. I'm I'm feeling this more than anything right now. I just want to end with this in prayer. Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm not enough. I recognize I, I lack skill. I lack the giftness to do some of the things you've called me to do. But I'm putting my yes on the table. It's a yes from me, Lord. Fill in all, all those many weaknesses. Fill in all those gaps and show me where you would lead me. Lord Jesus, you have my yes. In Jesus' name.